So uh, again, John 3, we're going to read it, and we'll read it in just a little bit, um, or just a few minutes, um, just to kind of recap what we have studied so far in John, because it really all kind of um, culminates, this is kind of an early climax uh, in the book, book, um, and and everything so far kind of comes to this moment of aha in this chapter, and then from now on, from the rest of John for a while, it's more story, more narrative, but John has been building up to this chapter, Uh, and we spent two months to get here, so uh, y'all might can kind of understand the gravity that has, uh, we've been building up towards, and to this text specifically. Um, John has given us a pretty incredible introduction uh, to Jesus, and and I hope that you've you've realized that, I hope that you've soaked all that in. Uh, Just to recap, John has taught us that Jesus is the Word of God, He's the favor from God, He's the Lamb of God, He's He's the new wine from God. He's a new platform from God. That's a lot, right? That's, that, that's, that's big, foundational, like, you know, boulder, you know, uh, mountain-moving truths, right? Uh, for John to open up his gospel and said, let me tell you about Jesus. I know some of you are Jewish, and you've got an Old Testament. Some of you are Greeks, and you've got philosophers, and you've got all things that you understand. Some of you are just atheists. Y'all don't know. Y'all don't care. I just want to introduce you to Jesus. He is God's Word, right? If you ever thought God had a Word for you, Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. Um, If you ever wonder where you stand with God or if you can stand with God in a good or positive way, Jesus is the favor from God. If you you come from a religious background where you sacrifice to God or you have to appease God or appeal to God and somehow ration or barter with God, Jesus is the Lamb of God that does that for you. That's pretty incredible that John has in the first chapter really said, hey, this is who Jesus is. Chapter 2, he opens up and says, Hey, Jesus is the new wine. The old wine has been put, the, the old wine is gone. It's, it's, all, it's all washed up. It's all used, right? And we've got these bottles. We've got all these canisters that we expect to have uh, uh, something to drink out of, and they're empty. But God has taken the water. God has taken ordinary. God has taken, you know, water that we use to purify ourselves and try to work ourselves into his favor. And he's taken that and poured it out. And he's made new wine. He's made something brand new for us and a, a new platform has risen out of that. Um, the temple is the old way of connecting with God. God's new way, God's new dwelling place is the person of Jesus in a relationship with Jesus gets you to God. John hasn't been telling us um, uh, hasn't been telling us about Jesus, right? We've heard John's direct experiences, right? This is not just John saying, I've heard this. This is John saying, I've seen this. Uh, from the middle of chapter 1 on, John, um, the disciple, leaves his place as John the Baptist's follower, and he begins to follow Jesus. Right? Ever since John the Baptist said, hey, you should follow him, John the disciple said, okay, I'll go and follow him. Um, and we've heard Jesus say things with such authority, um, that nobody, if you experience or you encountered, if you observed Jesus, if you heard Jesus, the way John's told the story, Jesus uh, presented himself in such a way that you could not doubt that he was absolutely, undeniably from God. Uh, of course, John would come to the conclusion that Jesus was God's Word made flesh, he was God's favor made free, and he's God's Lamb made to die for you and for me. So John didn't just say, oh, this is what I think Jesus is. John gave us in clear detail what the word means, what the favor means, what, what, what Jesus as God's lamb means. And it's all something for us. It's all something that is a gift to us, right? 
We learn from chapter 2 in in that narrative that Jesus demonstrated His divine power at the wedding in Cana, and He demonstrates His divine authority at the temple. When He does the miracle at Cana, He proves that He is a wonder worker. He has the power of God at His fingertips. When He does the scene in the temple, when He overturns the table and, and, and kind of condemns their practice of selling salvation, He shows that authority rests in Him not in anybody or anything else. John has crafted a story that positions Jesus as the authoritative voice of God. Um, that he, by saying that Jesus is God's Word, he's saying that Jesus is the definitive and cohesive message from God. And as we lit, witnessed in our last study, this bothered the Jewish leaders. It really bothered them. It threatened their foundation because Jesus showed up and and, and said, hey, I intend to change your foundation from law to grace, from the temple to me. And that was pretty offensive. That was pretty unsettling. He made it clear that in his demonstration with the wine, his rebuke in the temple, the old was a preview, not the full feature. Salvation was not for sale. God was going to give it away for free. And all this played right into the consciousness of the Jewish leaders and the Jewish thinkers in this time. They knew something had to change. They knew what they had wasn't working. They knew they weren't retaining people and people were hungry for more. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, come and see, and you could go and you could see, right? And and, and He served notice on their temple, on their religious system. All the while, He clearly had God's presence with Him and on Him. And the Jewish leaders knew, they knew Jesus had something that they didn't. But admittingly, and admitting they would not, they didn't want to confess they were wrong. right? Admitting that, that they had it wrong or that they were missing something would require a lot of humility and they weren't ready to be at that place. So they continued to beat their heads together as they had for ages. And they were asking the impossible questions because they were trying so hard to get God's attention. They were asking the questions, how can we get back into God's favor? How can we bring His presence back like it was in the old? How can we welcome His voice again? He's been silent for so long. What can we pull? What can we mash? What hoop can we jump through to get God's attention? And you see, John identifies Jesus the way he does. John reveals, or Jesus reveals Himself in these ways because God heard their cry. He saw their pleas, and God, but alas, they didn't expect Jesus. Right? God was answering their prayers. Jesus was exactly the answer to what they were begging for and looking for. But their platform, their box, their playground, they had already settled in their minds how it was going to happen. And if it didn't happen the way they expected it, they weren't going to receive it. The way they had always seen the world was from a, if we do this, God will do this. If we do X, God will do Y. The Mosaic Covenant was an if-then covenant. Uh, It was a, if we are obedient, God will bless. If we do this right, God will give us something in return. They live from this place that if we just do good, God will come back to us. And they kept preaching this idea. We've just got to be good, guys. Just be good, be good, be good. And one day, somehow, someway, God will turn back into our direction. But the asterisk on the be good part Underneath their sheen of confidence was this uncertainty. How good was good enough? How good must we be to tip the divine scales back into our favor? The Jewish leaders didn't let this uncertainty rise to the surface. They hid it, but while they were working on answering these questions and getting to the bottom of their, this mystery, this new sect, this new group, this new leadership emerged within their religion. 
um, people who were selected and appointed to solve their greatest problems, to do the good necessary to bring God back. A committee was appointed. Your job is to be good. Your job is to be so good that God will have to just, you know, it would, it would just be uh, impossible for God to ignore us or miss us. You are going to be so good and do so much good and give this and do that and wear that and walk that way and go there on this day and that time. And if we are just so good, God will not be able to help himself but to return to us. They selected men and gave them this main job to figure out how good is good enough. It was this one group's job, and they were the designated do-gooders. And we know them as the Pharisees. We read a lot about the Pharisees, and they're often presented in a villainous role, aren't they, in the New Testament? But if you would have been alive in the first century as these Pharisees rose to positions of power, you would have not envied or, 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 or feared the Pharisees at all. You would have admired them. You would have thought they were the greatest uh, uh, people in the society. You would have looked at them as if they were the only hope for the culture, for the future of Israel. Because they were the do-gooders. They were the ones that were going to do the good that we couldn't do. They were the ones that were going get, to get, get God's attention. And God was going to come back to us because they were going to do so much good that He couldn't help. But come back. The Pharisees were a group of super dedicated, super religious, almost superstitious, right? Washing their elbows at all times, washing from, you know, from, from hand to elbow, making sure they didn't touch this or walk there or do that on a certain day or a certain time. They were so superstitious and they came together around this one common cause. We've got to get God's attention so that when He decides to respond to our holiness will be the first to recognize his activity. And obviously, he'll approach us first anyways. Their self-imposed job was to be the very best. If you, all, if you saw a Pharisee on the street, and you were to ask a Pharisee, Hey, Mr. Pharisee, what do you do? He would say, My job is to be good. And if you were to say, How good? He would say, Better than you. And that wouldn't insult you. That wouldn't make you angry. That wouldn't make you think, well, man, aren't you self-righteous? You would think, wow, I'm glad somebody is trying. I'm glad somebody is able because you would have been taught that you're just a normal Jew. You don't have it in you. But these men, they do. But deep down, they didn't. And they knew they didn't. But they were employed. They were christened as the ones who would make it happen. Hmm. They were doing what the average person clearly could not do, but as confident as they were, as they appeared to be, they were really driven by this insecurity because everyone wondered just how good is good enough. Does God go on a curb, right? I mean, if we make a 70, does that mean we're in? Right? I mean, hey, you know, a D is fasting, right? Does that mean we're in? I mean, if we start making C's on this holiness test, is God going to say, well, you know what? You're doing better than you could, so hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back. I'm going to do this. Hey, how good was good enough? And all this is in the background of John 3. All this is in the background of John's gospel, honestly. Because you've heard it from John 1 and 2, because you know the whole story. You know that God has already observed these tireless and religious efforts to be good enough. And it was almost as if God's response to good enough was to say, enough is enough. I see you. And guys, 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 you're not getting anywhere. Because as we've read, as we know, God's response to religion was Jesus. Not because it had pleased Him. It could not please Him. It had not done, they had not done anything to earn Him. They were demonstrating how much they did not deserve Him. 
God opened His mouth for the first time in centuries and Jesus was His Word. God turned on the light in an even brighter way than He had in Genesis 1 in the beginning. Darker than the universe before time began was the heart of man and the heart of people. But Jesus would be bright enough to change everything. Darkness would not overwhelm Him. God had spoken before and there are laws and monologues in the Old Testament that He used to say or He had said before. But in this day, a better word was spoken. His word became flesh and dwelt among us. His thoughts carried by His breath. His breath carried His essence. With the flux of His whisper dwelt His divine nature. His word in this breath, this word became a living breathing person full of grace grace upon grace even though people had proven they were not good enough and could not be good enough God's response to not good enough was to give more than enough grace the whisper in this day was that this word from God had come to everyone but the Pharisees. If you read the story, if you read all the Gospels, you'll notice that uh, the, Jesus did not come to the religious people. He came to the outcast. He came to those that were called sinners and tax collectors. He did not show up at the temple, but He showed up at the Jordan River. To the outcast, to those who felt far away from God, to those who knew they were not good enough, who wondered if they would ever be able to do anything good. Normally, the Pharisees would have ignored the rumbles and rumors of a would-be Messiah showing up to someone besides them. But John the Baptist was preaching about him. And then Jesus showed up and was doing miracles and wonders, and people were flocking to him, and their temple was empty, but the Jordan River was packed. And the crowds that were following Jesus made it hard, impossible to deny him. The Pharisees wondered, Surely Jesus was from God, but why hadn't He come to us? I mean, hey, if Jesus is really this guy that we've been waiting for, if He really is from God, Messiah or not, you know, why didn't He come to us first? And maybe you felt like this as a religious person before. I'm not picking on us, but we're religious, right? We've been, most of us, we've been brought up this way. Maybe you wonder, you know, I thought God was going to do something, but why did He do it? Why did He do it for them? Why did He do it to them? Why did He not come to me? Because I was here ready and waiting with the right clothes on and the right haircut and the right, you know, songs and the right style and the right beliefs and the right behavior. I've been here the whole time and I've been expecting Him. I've been waiting for Him. And you know, if you say that's of God, that's fine. But you know, I thought He would come to me, not you. That's what the Pharisees were going through, right? We 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 guess He's from God, but if He's really from God, why wouldn't He come to us? Because nobody's better than us. The religious leaders approached Jesus in their safe zones where they could control the message, but Jesus resisted. After all, He was clearly leading them away from what they were holding on to. And make no mistakes, Jesus will not be outshined. Jesus will not share your stage. right? Jesus will not share a platform with somebody else. He doesn't stand alongside a denomination or a religion or a tradition and say, okay, I'll let y'all do this, but let me just get my word in at the end, but y'all can do whatever you want to. No, no, no. Jesus is the main attraction, right? He is the center of attention. He does not share the attention. He does not share the glory. He is the glory. And if he's not getting it all, he's not going to be there at all. Because he knows this, nothing can help you but him. Right? 
He told them that their temple would fall. He would not commit Himself to them. He would not yoke Himself with any group. He would not let anybody control Him. Not the Sadducees or the Pharisees, the priests or the Levites. You would not control Him and you would not define Him. They wanted to, but He would not let Himself be taken or controlled or owned by anybody. And the Pharisees were very, very indignant about this. They were very incredulous about this. They were with God on every issue, yet God wasn't with them. I mean, come on, Jesus, or come on, God. We are so right. God, we have read the Old Testament, and we know we have the right interpretation. Everyone else is wrong. I mean, even the Sadducees, they don't believe in a resurrection. I mean, you know, we, we, we kind of help you know, run the country with them, but you know, they're wrong. I mean, the Levites, you know, they got their weird ways because they've always lived in the temple, and the priests, are, you know, they, they can't only do certain things. But you know, we, we're really the free people, right? We're out amongst the people. We're doing good. We're serving people. We're, you know, we're keep staying clean. These Sadducees, they think they're right, but they're not. These Essenes, they live out in the desert. They don't even speak to anybody. They're hermits. They're hiding from people. I mean, we the Pharisees, right? We are the right Jews. We are the ones who know it and are doing it the right way. I mean, God, we are doing everything you ever could ask. We know, we know, we know. There's nothing that we're missing. I'm making light of this, but isn't it true that sometimes we go to God and we say, God, I'm doing everything right. As if we're not even open to ever being wrong. And I'm not saying that our intentions are not good, but isn't it true that sometimes we kind of act like we don't even need them? And the Pharisees, they meant well, but they went to God and said, God, you know, we're right, and you're, you're apparently you're you know, dwelling among us, but hey, we don't see you. I mean, you know, we're with you. We, we know when people say, you know, how do you feel about this? We quote the Scripture. When people say, you know, what do you believe about that? And is this wrong? Or is that a sin? Or is this, you know, okay. We just go with the Scripture. We are with you on every issue, yet you're not with us. I mean, what gives? The Pharisees making up about 50% of the governing body of Jerusalem, they had a secret meeting. Nobody knew about this. They had a secret meeting, and someone in the group suggested that one of them be nominated, volunteer, to go and see why Jesus resisted them. One of us needs to go and ask him, what do you know that we don't? I mean, of course, surely. We're just going to be man on man, right? You know, you're from God. We're of God, right? We know more about God than anybody. You seem to know a lot about God because you're doing all these miracles and all these wonders and you, know, you say all these snappy and witty things. So, hey, Jesus, what do you know that we don't know? And pst, we're the do-gooders, so we kind of need to be the mouthpiece. We need to be the ones that go to the people and say, thus says the Lord. So if you could just help us out a little bit, it would make us look a lot better and we would kind of win this culture war. So, hey, Jesus, why don't you help us out? We've got to ask him what we've been doing wrong because if we aren't with God, if we aren't in with God, who can be? How much more good do we have to do? And this is so refreshing for somebody tonight. If you find yourself beating your head against your desk or your steering wheel or you're just in life in general some days and you're thinking, what more do I have to do? God, I'm trying and I've done everything I know to do. Just know that this might be so liberating for you to hear this text and to be to find yourself in the role of one of these Pharisees. And listen, they're not villains. They're not evil. They're just people that try to do the right thing that realize that it wasn't getting them anywhere and they wondered, what are we doing wrong? It turns out they weren't doing a lot wrong. But it turns out there wasn't anything good they could do to make a difference. One of the Pharisees apparently drew the short straw and was appointed to seek out Jesus. Ironically, maybe coincidentally, they settled on a meeting 
one night. One night. The Pharisees thought they had the light. They thought they were in the light. But slowly it was becoming obvious that they were not. The light drew one of the Pharisees. We know him, Nicodemus. And the most famous conversation between two people possibly ever took place on that night. John 3 verse 1 and 2 tells us how the story begins. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know. So that tells us there was a conversation. There was a meeting. There was a decision amongst the we. We need to go talk to him because he has something we don't. So Nicodemus was the one nominated to go. We know, I love this, this is so powerful. We know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Maybe Nicodemus was speaking off script there, I don't know. He says, hey Jesus, you know, y'all know, you know I'm a special, I'm a ruler, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm a you know, authority guy, but listen, we know that you are from God because no one else could do the things that you do unless... God was with him. And Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but we've been pretending God has been with us for all these years, but the temple is as empty and dead as ever. God is not with us. But ever since you've been here, something is different. You know, everyone who's ever heard about Jesus, encountered Jesus in his movement, has something to say about Jesus. Worship him or not, it is undeniable the impact he's had on the world. Isn't it true? That every religion, every religion wants a piece of Jesus. Every philosophy wants a piece of Jesus. Every politician wants a piece of Jesus. Every leader quotes him. Everybody, even the people that aren't Christians, well, yeah, you know, Jesus is a great guy. They'll quote him and, and, and take, you know, virtues from him. Jesus turns head, and rightfully so. We know that you are a man come from God because nobody could do the things that you do unless God was with him. It is undeniable that you are from God. So I got to ask you a question, Jesus. And Jesus does the thing that Jesus always did because he could read your mind. He can read my mind. He can read everybody's mind. He can read Nicodemus's mind. He did the thing he always did. He answered Nicodemus's question before Nicodemus ever got to ask it. Jesus answered and said to him, Well, I didn't ask the question yet, Jesus. <laughs> I already know the question. Don't worry, Nicodemus. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, I know what you're going to ask. I know what you're going to ask. How good do I got to be to get into God's favor? How good do I got to be to get into the presence of God? How good do we got to be to bring the kingdom back, to bring the king here? How good do we got to be to get in favor with God? How good do we got to be to get what you got? And Nicodemus tells, Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless someone is born again. You know what he's saying there? A person's goodness can't so much as get them in sight of the kingdom of God. Listen, Nicodemus, I know what you're asking. How good is good enough? You cannot be good your way into God's favor, God's presence, God's kingdom. This isn't bad news, by the way. Right? Jesus came on the scene preaching good news. You remember what the, the good news was? Mark 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. 
Goodness isn't going to get you there. But the good news is. Here's the thing. He says, Nicodemus, you can't even see it unless you're born again. Do you, do you think about this? Nicodemus was staring the king and kingdom eye to eye and didn't even realize it. Jesus said, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you're not going to even see the kingdom of God. And he was looking right at him. What, he, what had he done to deserve this opportunity? Nothing at all. How did he get there in front of Jesus that mysterious night? He didn't even realize how he got there. He didn't even realize how he was seeing the kingdom of God. Remember what John the Baptist said was the secret to seeing the kingdom of God? Look. Look. There he is. Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look into His glorious, wonderful face. To see clearly, to see fully, He would have to change the way He saw the world, the way He saw Himself, the way He saw God. That's what it means to repent. That can't happen in the dark. But when the light turns on, anything is possible. But here's the secret that Jesus is telling us about repentance. Repentance is not about what we do, but about what we believe And that flies in the face of religious tradition. That flies in the face of what we think and how we feel like things can be done and things should be done. Most believe in themselves, like Nicodemus. He had been trained to believe in himself, born into the cycle of believing in ourselves, thinking that we can make it happen. Our nature does not like to admit that we're ever wrong. Our nature does not like to receive help from anybody. And that's why we need a new birth. Of course, this was a brand new idea to Nicodemus to everybody. In verse 4, Nicodemus responds, maybe being sarcastic, maybe being funny, maybe a little bit of both. He leans into Jesus' metaphor, and he says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, hey, Jesus, you know, I thought you were smart. Born again? Born a second time? I mean, what? And then Jesus responds, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He says, Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So is how God seems to be working and how God makes a habit of working. Nicodemus, didn't you tell me when we first started this? Didn't you tell me that you... Know that I'm from God, even though, even though, even though you can't explain it? Nicodemus, this is not something you do. This is something that God does. Nicodemus didn't know that God broke his silence and breathed into being his son 30 years before this but he could, because he could not see it. But just because you can't see it doesn't mean it can't happen or didn't happen. I mean, Nicodemus, didn't you just confess in verse number 2, we know that you're a man come from God because no one else could do the things that you do unless you be of God. I can't explain it, but I can clearly see it. Jesus steers it back to this goading Nicodemus a bit back to his original question to which Nicodemus does not catch on. He's flabbergasted, honestly. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can this be? Jesus 
I thought you were going to have a rational conversation, and now you're talking about water and the Spirit. You know, what does that even mean? And, you know, what are you talking about? You know, you're really, really leaning into this new birth thing, aren't you, Jesus? Right? Because the Jewish people, the Jewish, uh, Jewish believed that, you know, you're born of the water, of the natural, you know, conception and, and, and birthing process. And upon life, upon conception and upon birth, obviously, um, God put His Spirit in you, and God put His, you know, spark of, of design and all that from my mother's womb, right, Jeremiah? From my mother's womb, I was knit and formed. So the Jews believed there was a natural process of being born but also a spiritual idea of God anointing you and calling you and forming you and Jesus says in the same way you are going to be born into God's kingdom as you were born originally as you were born naturally there's a supernatural birth that you're going to have to experience to get into my kingdom to get into God's kingdom Nicodemus doesn't catch on and then Jesus really takes it up a notch verse 10 are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Nicodemus, you're smarter than this. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness? Jesus, did you just say we? Did you just say our? Who, what, who, what are you, who are you speaking for? If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe them, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I mean, hey, Nicodemus, I was just explaining the birthing process as to what it's like when a baby is conceived and born and how, how y'all believe as Jews, how we believe as Jews that a baby is anointed by God. I was just talking about earthly things. I wasn't even talking about spiritual things yet. And then, and then Jesus, as if he hasn't already lost Nicodemus, he gets him back with this. No one has ascended to heaven, but, but he who comes down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Nicodemus, I know you're asking me how good is good enough. I know you, you want to know how good do I have to be to get in with God like you think I am in with God. You think I'm just a man? You think I'm just like you? I think you've got this mistaken, Nicodemus. No one, no one has ever ascended to heaven. There's no one who's ever been good enough to make it there. But I have come down from there. And Nicodemus all of a sudden leans back in his chair a little bit and kind of begins to lean up from his seat. Who was Jesus? He thought he was just a teacher. He thought he was just a man, but Jesus, are you claiming? Jesus, are you claiming to be something? Are, are, you, do you, are you, have you lost your mind? I mean, maybe, you know, what, why did I even come here? You're, you're, you're a loon. You're not, even, you know, you're not even saying, why am I even in the same room as you? I thought you were just a special guy, teacher, who had something that I didn't have. Clearly, whoo-hoo, you have, you're not, you're not who I thought you were. And then Jesus says, okay, I know I'm, lo I'm losing you, Jesus. I'm, I'm losing you, Nick, but I'm going to go ahead and lean into this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He says, before you leave Nicodemus, i got to tell you something. As Moses lifted up the serpent when, he took the, when, when the nation of Israel was being punished and they were, they were sinning, God said, Moses, take a, 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 a piece of bronze, make it look like a serpent, stick it on a pole. Whoever looks at it will be healed. Just a random story that Jesus pulls from, and Nicodemus is like, what, 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 what? Why are you bringing that up? And then Jesus says, I know you're about to leave, Nicodemus. I know you're about to walk out the door. But, who's, but whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Before you leave, Nicodemus, 
as Moses put the serpent on the pole, and whoever believed and looked was saved, whoever believes in the Son of Man when He is lifted up will likewise have eternal life. Most manuscripts suggest that that's when the meeting ended. And Nicodemus was like, Whoo, I got to get out of this guy's house. Jesus says to Nicodemus, the Son of Man has come down from heaven to be lifted up on earth. Not for fame, but to be framed. Jesus, don't you mean behave? I mean, you know, if I'm really going to stick around for this, don't you mean behave? He says, no, 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 I mean believe. And Nicodemus, you'll, you'll, this will come back to you later. But this isn't about behaving. This is about believing. Not about being good. This is about belonging to God. Don't forget it. It will all make sense in a few days. Nicodemus goes back to the council and says, Guys, buckle up. We're about to go to war because this guy's crazy. And if he keeps saying the stuff that he said to me, he's going to really unsettle us. But Jesus goes on to demonstrate just how powerful he was. He leads the Samaritan nation to uh, faith. He uh, heals a disabled man. He feeds 5,000 at a big festival when uh, Passover came into town. Jesus causes a big scene, tells people to turn from their religion to Him. And the council, knowing that this guy is dangerous, sends some guards to arrest him. And the guards go and, 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 and and plan to arrest him. But they listen to his sermon and they come back empty handed and they say, hey, we listened to him. You listened to his sermon? Yeah, we were listening to his sermon and it's undeniable this guy is from God. Y'all should bring him in here and listen to him. And Nicodemus is like, y'all, y'all he got to y'all too? I mean, I can't get him off my mind. I don't, know, I don't know what to do about that stuff he told me. But And Nicodemus speaks up in the meeting. He says, yeah, guys, maybe we should bring him in one more time. I've been thinking about that stuff he said at the end of my meeting, and I don't really know what it means, lift it up, believe, but maybe, maybe there was something to it. From there, Jesus continues to up the ante. He calls himself the light of the world. He claims to be equal to God the Father. He raises a dead man's four day, a dead man four days after he was buried. And the council recognizes, and it's unanimous, as soon as Passover is over, I mean, as soon as it sets, the sun sets on Thursday, this is going to end. Jesus has got to die. He is dangerous. So as it goes, Jesus is arrested and sentenced to die on a cross. And in silent, and in the courtroom, in the crowd, Nicodemus was silent. No doubt he stood on the hill of Calvary and watched Jesus as he was laid down and nailed. They all watched, waiting to see him raised up to die. The vertical beam of the Roman crosses were already in the ground, so you would be nailed to the horizontal beam, and then there was a carved out slit where the horizontal was placed on the vertical. And as Nicodemus stood there and heard the nails go into the beam, as Jesus was slowly raised up on a Roman cross, Nicodemus couldn't believe what he was seeing. Just as Moses lifted up the Son of Man, must be lifted up. On that hill, at that moment, Nicodemus saw the kingdom of God for the very first time. The Lamb of God lifted high, left to die. 
to bleed to death. Whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. All of a sudden, I believe it came back to Nicodemus. Scripture that he studied as a child. Passages from Isaiah that he would have memorized. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. We like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. And Nicodemus said, Wow. Just as the serpent was lifted up, Jesus died, and Nicodemus knew he could not be silent any longer. He didn't expect a resurrection, but he did believe that Jesus had not died in vain. Nicodemus believed that Jesus had not died in vain. He trusted that his sins were washed away. He didn't have to be good enough. He simply had to trust that Jesus was enough. As he watched on that hillside that day, something happened as he looked to the Son of Man on the cross. Something inside of him felt different. His heart began to pound. His eyes began to see as he put his faith in the Son of Man on the cross. Nicodemus felt born again. Another council member walked up to him after the cross and said, Guy, Nicodemus, I've got a crazy idea. We've got to resign from our council place. And we've got to take that body and we've got to give it a proper burial. Enough is enough. We need to go public. So Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his body and who was with him? Nicodemus, who decided he needed to go public no matter what it might cost him. As he did, it was so strange. He felt like he could see. He felt different. He felt alive. Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes with 75 pounds in weight. They took the body of Jesus, bound in linen clothes with its spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And that's why that what followed is so undeniable. Had Jesus been left on the cross, He would have been eaten by birds and dogs. He would have been burned in a valley called Gehenna. But because Nicodemus went public, Jesus was buried. And because He was buried, the stage for the most unbelievable, undeniable day in history was set. And looking back on this side of Jesus' resurrection... John would go on to summarize the life and the story and the person of Jesus. And he included this summary at the end of this Nicodemus encounter, I think because it just made sense. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, not behaves, believes in Him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And John summarizes this so perfectly. 
God loved, so He gave. We believe, so we receive. New life, eternal life, all because of Jesus Christ. And you can imagine Nicodemus looking back that day as they buried the body. It all makes sense. How good is good enough? Jesus, the perfect Lamb, Word, Favor, Son of God, is and only will ever be enough. Rex, I'd like you to come play a verse of imitation. I believe everybody here tonight knows this personally and knows this in your heart. But the little word that John uses in John 3.16 is this little Greek word, pistuon. Pistuon is a Greek word that doesn't just mean believe in or have faith that, but it's a word that means to trust in, to believe that. It speaks of transferring the trust for your life into the life of Jesus. It speaks of taking the faith out of yourself or out of anything else and placing it into, onto Jesus. It's shifting your weight from you to Him. That's what Nicodemus did. That's what, if you're saved, you've done. But we need to remind ourselves of how important this is and how monumental this is. How this is how we were born again, how we can be born again, and the only thing that keeps us in God's family. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. I love preaching this. It's awesome to preach this. Lord, if anything, it equips your people to be able to go and say, i got to tell you about Nicodemus. i got to tell you how his story can be your story. Lord, maybe somebody tonight can say, this is my story. I didn't believe. I didn't understand. I came to God and said, God, I thought I was good enough, and I want to know what's wrong with me, and what can I do? And maybe like Nicodemus, they didn't make, you didn't get all the answers. But Jesus said, Nicodemus, I just want you to watch me. I just want you to watch me and pay close attention to me. And when I am lifted up, when you see me on the cross, it will all make sense. I will bear the sins. I will bear your iniquity. I will bear all the bad you've done. And all the good that you think you should do, I'm going to do it for you because what could be more good? What could be more holy than a spotless Son of God dying for sinful man? So as I die for you, the good that you can't do, I'm going to do for you. And the bad that you've done, I'm going to undo for you. To trust in me, depend on me, have faith in me, and nothing, nothing will ever separate you from God from then on because you will be born again, and being born again will change everything, and you will see clearly. Father, may you encourage your people to this. If there's somebody that needs to hear this for the first time, Lord, may they make it personal. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.